0: This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them, spending time with the Blog2Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today, in person this time, is Mr. Stephen Rostovsky, founder of Rostovsky Watches. Stephen, welcome. Thank you for having me, Ariel. Nice to be here. We've uh, we've known each other quite a while. We're both uh, Los Angeles residents. And it's always good to
1: sort of connect with people here in Los Angeles because when you go to Switzerland, we really feel like we're on the far side of the world, don't we? And it's hard to spend time and sit down and relax. We're always running. Yeah, yeah.
0: They We, we go to their home and they don't recognize sort of how far we've come. But also, I think for many years, the West Coast of America, like, even despite all the watch love and the performance, it's sort of like Switzerland thought we were some sort of like
1: backwater part of the country. I think the longest time we ever sat down together was in the lounge of the airport, flying home. <laughs> <laughs> when when we had nothing else to do, we were captive audiences to each other.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and we and we go and we for many years, both of us in our own ways, have been going on our pilgrimages uh, to Switzerland. Today, you. Have all your focus around Rostovsky Watches, which is um a store, and we'll get into some of the brands that you are an authorized dealer of. But I would think it's important to talk about a little bit how you got into all this because you have been responsible for people buying some of the most, you know, sophisticated and high-end watches in the world, Grubel Forcey, uh, which is sort of now a little bit behind you and also Debentune and things like that. I guess talk a little bit about how you, you know being not from L.A., but living in L.A., become the, became the U.S. distributor of a brand like Gribble 4
1: That's a good question. Thank you. Just to correct you firstly, I don't have a retail store. I have an office in Beverly Hills, eighth-floor office, and we converted uh, one of the rooms into a gorgeous lounge. So COVID helped us to... Uh, break away from this concept that to be authorized and represent brands, you had to be on the storefront ground level. We're in a, in a lounge environment.
0: For me, I guess when I say retail, I almost Same. Like include website in there. There you go. Because at the end of the day, the, the, the lines are... Remember for the longest time, it was like digital
1: and retail. And there was like this strict separation between the two. Now the question is, what does all that even mean? Right. And, and back then, of course, even then, if you didn't have a retail store from ground level you could not really represent any brands. So that was an interesting change, I think, through the times of COVID. But to get back to your original question, um, I was in—I moved to America in 1990, and I've, I was in the software business. That was my first career. And I ran a, a company that specialized in um, accounting software for CPAs that handled high net worth individuals, called themselves business managers, a nice niche business. I sold that in 1999 and had a three-year contract through 2002. And I've always loved watches. I've loved watches from the age of 18 years old. So I've always really been interested in watches. I I heard one of your podcasts talking about Hong Kong. I remember my first trip to Hong Kong, buying my first Rolex uh, way back then. So I've always had a real passion for watches, started uh, buying a few watches for myself. And then in the three-year contract, uh, when I sold my company, I actually got very involved in learning a lot about watches, all the magazines. There were two websites at the time, uh, Watch Time, uh, no, Time Zone and… Purists. No, there was another forum, Watch Something Watch. I'm trying to remember now. Watch You Seek. Which one? Watch You Seek. No, I'll remember in a minute. But anyway, Time Zone and the other one. Watch Pro site, probably? Uh, pro- one of those original <laughs> names, yes. And we were, you know, I found those sites and started to trade, buy, sell, met a lot of other collectors. And over a three year period, I determined I kept a spreadsheet and I had bought and sold 156 watches in wow. three years. And I didn't keep a huge collection personally. I kept no more than 10 watches in my personal collection. So I knew I started with six or 10 and finished with six or 10 and 156 came and left. And then after I resigned from my software company uh, that had acquired me, I took a year off. We had our third child and I decided to, I was in the process of signing up in the corporate world again with a catalog fulfillment company. And a friend of mine and myself were sitting down the day of uh, New Year, and he said, why don't you just trade watches? You know how to do it, you love it, it's your passion. Why don't you try it? So I decided I'll try. Worked from home for a little bit till the baby was born and uh, moved into an office in Beverly Hills and I've never turned back. So I always loved, going back to your initial question, I've always loved smaller independent brands. I have a passion for wristwatches. I would buy what I love to keep for myself if I had to keep it, and in 2007, I acquired my first Gruber 4 for my personal collection. And later on, they approached me to uh, op- open up distribution in the United States.
0: What does it take
1: to be a good watch
0: trader? Because that many watches in that short time, especially at that era where it wasn't as easy to get watches, um, talk a little bit about what it takes to even do that, but also what it takes to be successful. Because I think that there's a lot of people that would love to do some of the stuff that you did, but
1: most people will lose money, right? I did lose money
0: okay. in those days, <laughs>
1: but in the just to go back to some of the dynamics, I, I calculated I lost about twenty thousand dollars. I kept a spreadsheet. It's not too bad. And I, at that point, you know, watch prices have increased significantly since two thousand and two. So we're talking 22, 22 think it's years. And you get some good deals back then. And let's say on average, I traded one and a half million dollars worth of watches in total with 150 watches only losing 20,000, I really figured it out. But actually, I took it a step further. In the nine months that I took off, because I decided to take off some time, I changed my philosophy at that point in time. I said, I'm still going to buy only what I want to wear for myself, but I won't sell it unless I break even or make money. And in that summer, I made $5,000. So obviously, it's not a living, but I realized that I could make money doing this. Interesting. Where would you acquire these watches? From other private collectors and also from uh, dealers that wanted to sell out of watches. And most of it I met through these uh, watch forums. Now, I think
0: what's incumbent to say here, because it's really important, is that to do all this, you had to be a very active social creature. Totally. This is not like, I'm going to go shop on a website, buy stuff on eBay. This is a lot of interacting with humans, wheeling and dealing, and... You know That also is something which represents some watch lovers, but many are introverts, right? So you being quite extroverted seemed to give you a bit of an edge.
1: And I was learning. I spent at least, I'm guessing, 15 hours a week in those years learning more about watches. From 1999 to 2002, every magazine, every article, every publication, every website, I was learning and reading. It's
0: funny because around that time, 2001 especially, is when I started really getting into it. And we talked about um, Wristwatch Annual. Right. Which is funny because that publication was probably responsible for me being here today.
1: Really? In what way?
0: Well, I mentioned this before, but it's sort of funny. I was, I was in college. I was in Tucson, Arizona at the time. And uh, I, I got into a fight with my then-girlfriend and I decided to leave and go to the bookstore, which was my, my sanctuary, right, when I got upset. And the bookstores at the time had these you know, magazine sections. And there in the magazine section was this thing called wristwatch annual. And I picked it up. And the first thing I noticed as you sort of look through it was, and we talked about this, prices, right? You're looking at what you're like, you know, I guess the look of watches, you know, you've seen these things around, but then you see these prices associated with it. And for me, it garnered this curiosity. this like, wait a minute, why is it that expensive? And then you flip through and you see all, you know, it's not every brand, but it's a great amount of variety. And that spurred me to do exactly what you said, which is consume as much information as I could with what was available, which was all this information online and what you could sort of get. And because no- nobody really sort of hands it to you, it's really reliant on you as a consumer to figure out this weird world. And as someone who likes challenges and probably likes to figure out puzzles as you and maybe I do, this is like, not only are these products cool, but it's so intriguing, like learning all about this. Because especially at the time, I don't know what percentage of brands, but it seemed like most of the cool big brands had like no
1: presence in America. <laughs> and no presence socially, no presence yeah. on the internet. And that that publication was a Bible. It yeah. really was. Yeah. I, and I still have today, probably in my office, in my bookshelf, I probably have 20 years or whatever, 15 years worth of wristwatch annuals. Yeah. And I would refer back to them. That's where I would find my price reference guides.
0: On a blog to watch, when when I first started in 2007, because of that publication, and in contrast to the other publications which existed, I made sure that whenever possible, and today it's sort of like a holy rule, the price is mentioned. Because for so long, this industry, for whatever reason, has has been like price shy. And you and I have had these same fights with these people in Switzerland. They're like, price on request. I'm like, I just requested it. (laughs) Who will you tell the price to? And it just reeks... Of them, you know, looking at a customer, you know, eyeing them up and down, being like, okay, what can I get away with asking? Like, no consumer feels safe in this environment. Having a retail price, no matter how high or low, is some
1: safety that you're not gonna be discriminated against, right? And also the last few years, which is another whole conversation, is there wasn't really no reference anymore to a retail price because so many watches were selling for over retail. So what does that mean anymore now to have a retail price? There's I, I, a market price and a retail price, and before it used to be a retail price, and what's the real selling price below retail price? Now it's what's the market price above retail price. It became crazy.
0: So you, you've been behind the scenes a little bit. Tell me, is there a, a math or a formula to how retail prices are or should be calculated? Or is it kind of this emotional thing where you're like, that sounds like a million dollar watch?
1: I, you know, I really don't know the answer to that question. As you mentioned, I have been behind the scenes with uh, many brands, Libethune and uh, Grubel Forzi specifically. I'm also involved very much with a good friend, Romain Gauthier. And, work, and he uh, advises me a lot about some of the ins and outs of the business. I think the way the Swiss uh, factories work is they have a factor, a multiplication factor, and whether it's a small independent brand and it's five times uh, cost to get to a retail price, or whether it's a larger brand that spends more money on advertising and they have a factor of up to 10 times, Yeah, that's how they work, I think, financially. That's how it works internally. And it's very difficult to break that that mold, but I do think it's a very good question you ask because I do think that as prices started to increase over the last few years through COVID times, the factories did look back and say, well, hold on, if the market price is selling for so much greater than my normal factor, maybe I should take advantage of some of that and just say, okay, this watch is worth X instead of five times cost. And I think that did happen, truthfully. Yeah, I
0: want your opinion here on this because I think this is a very important topic because I think the topic of greed comes in here. And especially since the pandemic with this quote-unquote market price adjustment happening, you heard a lot of people saying this term, oh, why does it cost that much? Because I can get away with it. And I felt that there was no ethics there because you said if there's a formula and you stick that formula and at five times production cost, you're making your money— then isn't it just greedy if you're going up to six, seven, eight times cost
1: when you've already established that you can make your money back? Yes, I I have to confess, I haven't heard anybody in the industry tell me that. I'm charging it because I can get that. i have never heard that. I've heard the retailers say it. When they charge more than retail. Okay, Uh, all right. Well, that's interesting because the authorized retailers should not be selling any of the brands that they represent for above retail. They they got bold. That's another conversation. But um, I, I would I think that this factor also causes problems. So I'll give you an example. When you sit in a factory position and you have a factor of five, for example, and you produce, and I'm going to use an example now with D-Bethune, and you produce a stylus, the setting pin to change the the functions on a, on a perpetual calendar watch, and the cost to produce that because of all the hand finishing and all the labor that goes into it because they're a small, independent, hand-finished firm, and if the cost is... 300 swiss francs now all of a sudden if you have a factor of five the retail price has to be 1500 swiss francs and what i thought early on was you don't have to give the retailers margin you don't have to make the same margin for yourself for items that are really just service items for the end consumer taking the consumer into into play here and we, I succeeded in many cases. So instead of having a retail price of fifteen hundred, so if cost was three in that example, with a factor of five, make the 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 retail price of the consumer five hundred and sell it. A, you make a small margin just to cover your cost, and allow the retailer to to just cover their costs and get the consumer the price they need.
0: I I, I agree with you so much here, and I think it opens up this bigger picture of we'll just call it customer service to think of the customer because oftentimes the watch factories we'll call them factories because they operate like factories even if they're not factories they won't think like you're talking they won't realize how someone will react you know you deal with a customer you have the conversations where like Stephen really this much for this little thing and I'll, I'll take it a step further and I had a conversation with a brand yesterday about this actually they have this new model coming out two versions of it essentially the same watch $200 $200 price difference between the two. And the reason is that one of the case colors costs a little bit more. This isn't a PVD thing. It's just the case color just costs a little bit more. And I'm like, why even do that? Just amortize the cost out because you're training the consumer to think the one that costs a little bit more is better, when in reality, it's not.
1: And, and may I ask you on that, on that subject without disclosing any brand, but is that 200, 200 on 20000 or 200 on 1000 it represents uh, probably a big percentage of the price in a, total. On about six thousand. Okay, so it's still a big percentage. well, and 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 you're right, they're creating a, a scenario, their their cost is probably twenty more, yeah if it's a ten times factor. So their cost is twenty more, they want to multiply the ten to get a two hundred, and they should just amortise it in and create a similar price for both the watches. Exactly. One, they'll make slightly more margin, one they'll make slightly less margin but they don't think like that.
0: I know, and it's just the consumer, you know, genuinely gets confused in this in this industry, a lot. And I have felt that my primary job above everything else before telling people about new watches and new brands is just helping to sort out some of the confusion. Right. right? I mean, you and I, when we first started looking at tech specs of watches, there's no explanation of what any of this means, right? We have to look at these technical specifications and reverse engineer for ourselves what the hell anyone's talking about, right? This is an industry that is impermeable, and I think that's part of the attraction, right? Because you sort of have to know, and you and I have been interested in this for you know more than 20 years now. And and I hope you'll agree that on a regular basis, you're still lo- learning new stuff. How something was made, who made it, if something is good, if something's bad, some reason for for this. Of course, the history is this huge open world about all the past, innov- even just the last 100 years of wristwatches. It's an insane amount that no one human being can really wrap their mind around. And
1: I think we like that about it. And we like the fact that there's no real justification even for value. (laughs) You don't think so? No, because really, there's an explanation why something costs more than the other and how much labor and work and uh, et cetera goes into it. But really, when you look at a a small clock or a wristwatch. I'm thinking of those little car clocks that I bought one for my office. It's the retail price of a Camry, a Toyota Camry car. (laughs) How do you justify that this small car clock made in Switzerland costs 30-something thousand and a Toyota Camry costs 30-something thousand? But we're selling dreams, and this, this is passion, and... You know, there is no real logic behind it at the end of the day, but we love it, and we continue to do it, and we will continue to do it.
0: Well, I think the most important takeaway is that there's certain pieces of this puzzle that you need, and I think the sort of push towards vertical integration, which a lot of brands tried to do, is misguided for the simple notion that the mentality required to make a watch is very different than the mentality required to educate about a watch or to sell a watch. and. You add, as an intermediary, a necessary step. Because I believe that oftentimes, if the person that you're
1: selling to spoke directly to the factory, that sale would never happen. Right, so you, you, it's something nobody's ever spoken to me about. You just brought up a very interesting topic, and I hope I don't go off track here. But you just spoke about value add. So I came from the software business. So an authorized reseller in the software business was always called a VAR, V-A-R, value-added reseller. And if you didn't add value, you were not a value-added reseller. So across the chain, there had to be some value add. Right. And in the watch business, I never saw that. It, until recently, and maybe I'm even wrong, but there were so many years that went by that I would walk into retail stores throughout the world where the salespeople knew way less than I knew. And I hear that complaint constantly amongst my clients that I know so much more than the salespeople at, at the authorized retail stores. So just the fact that they had brick and mortar, the fact that they had a good location, the fact that it looked pretty, did that give them the right to add value? In most cases, they weren't. They were reselling and representing brands, but they really weren't adding the value that was necessary. And you wanna know
0: why I think this happens? Yep. Because again, the watch brands are run like factories. The factories know how to evaluate measurable things, and the value add that a retailer brings is not without measure, but has so many intangibles that it's difficult to put on paper what the value add is. And therefore, I think some of the powers that be in Switzerland simply can't ramp their mind around it.
1: Makes sense, but the, value, the that was the term value added reseller, a VAR, and you just spoke about the value add, and it wasn't there. So, and you, and
0: you, and you. And you you, amongst many other people in your position, are necessarily bringing at the table. And a lot of it is regional. You know, uh, you understand a particular clientele, and sometimes it's not even like regional in terms of places, but it's also demographically regional. Every consumer has somebody they want to talk to and somewhere they want to talk to them. And there must be this well-established network out there of independent people that sell watches. This drive for this sort of vertical integration and direct-to-consumer, other than them just wanting to capture more margin, I've never understood it because it's never seemed to work better than when someone else does it. You know what I mean? Like, remember, uh, maybe about a decade ago, some of the especially corporately run companies were so excited about having their own stores filled with their own staff, and they're like, no discounts, and we'll get to keep all the margin, and people will come in here and only see our watches. And for the most part, it turned out to be a big flop. Early on. I think it still yeah. is a flop. I think they just dedicated to it and they're afraid of going back because there's, there's the distrust factor that they can't seem to get over. But I don't see brand boutiques outside of a lot of game playing as being sort of like
1: a nice stable business. Long run, you might be right. And I think people do want variety. They want to be able to go and see variety. And that's why you see, I'm just thinking now we're talking, I'm thinking about the, you know, you, you want to go and buy an automotive. And yes, there are brand Obviously, each store that you walk into from the street represents one car, whether it's BMW or Mercedes or whoever, but they're all located on the same street. Yeah. So you can walk from one to the other and visit with 10 different brands. That doesn't happen in mono brand, like you're talking about in the wristwatch. I mean, business. In, in
0: the car world, it's assumed the consumer is going to, have to
1: compare and shop. Everybody knows right. this is happening. So you do have your mono brand what you're saying is you have your mono brands but you can walk from one to the other but that's and That's about practicality. Right.
0: Let's be honest. To be a dealer of multiple cars, to have all the cars there, all the parts, all the expertise, I just don't think it makes sense. Watches you can do it. Right. You don't need to have a, a giant parts department that takes up a warehouse. For all your parts, if you have a bunch of different cars. You know what I mean? Like with watches, it makes more sense because of the size. I love, I love that the watch industry compares itself to the car industry. It's it makes sense and it's smart, but it's not a one-to-one match. Right. And they always pretend like it's a one-to-one match. Like a certified pre-owned works great there, let's do it as well. Not so fast. It's not that simple.
1: It's interesting. I spoke of this concept of certified pre-owned for so many years. I thought about how to do it, how do we get through that? And I heard one of your uh, podcasts when you were talking about um, 11 James. Yeah, I worked with those guys at 11 11 James early on. I Mm -hmm. guided them, I advised them, I directed them, but I knew at some point they weren't gonna be able to see through to the finish line. Because it's it's a movable asset that is just too hard to control. And one collector, especially on the high end, I mean, I know I speak for myself. I always try to imitate what I would want for myself. I'm so a type personality that I wouldn't want my watch treated differently the way I treat it myself. So if I allowed somebody else to rent it for a few weeks or months and then take it back again later, it just wouldn't have worked for me personally. But it's interesting how all of those things, the certified pre-owned, the, um, the uh, 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 11 James, which was basically a rental, rental program, yeah. they work very well in the car business. They just don't haven't worked properly yet in our business.
0: I think that, you know, uh, part of the problem is trying to make a business model out of it, also getting consumers to rally around something, to get them to trust, um, and and also to have something that makes I think I think the renting thing doesn't make sense. What I do think makes sense is some easy ability for people to trade with one another, maybe even without cash. But what I found is, you remember you told me your first three years, you bought like a bunch of watches, but you only with six of them? So... What's important about that is after acquiring watches, you then wanted a way of get ri- get getting rid of them. And most consumers face two prospects. One, I keep the, or I guess three. One, I keep the watch forever. Two, I sell it at a loss. Very rarely are you going to make any money. Or three, and this is the hardest option, but probably the most attractive, is I can just trade it for something I want. Right. Someone who wants this will take it because they haven't had it, and I'll take something from them that I'm interested in. I firmly believe that because the natural behavior is to consolidate your collection, people would rather trade away for something they want than sell or rent. To facilitate this behavior is a bit hard. Right. But I think that's what people want to do.
1: I agree with you 100%, and I'm thinking about something as you're speaking in the early days, 20 years ago, 15 years ago even, maybe even 11 and 12 years ago, each country, each culture has a different approach to things. I remember talking to many of the watchmakers and brand owners in Switzerland. They couldn't even come to an understanding about why a consumer would buy a watch, one of their watches, and then want to trade it or sell it later on and not just keep it. They couldn't understand. And yet, at the same time, they wanted to keep producing in quantities and more quantities and more quantities and, couldn't understand, and wanted people to just absorb them without having to move them. That didn't make any sense to me. Well, they just they just
0: wanted to sell into the market. They didn't care if any bu- consumers were buying it. And sell out.
1: Yeah. Coming back to one of your first questions um, about how did I get into some of the highest end watches and, and all those independent brands and exotic watches. And a lot of people ask me, how did you succeed back then without doing any marketing any promotion, anything. You know, in those days they used to call the, mark, the secondary market the gray market. Now yeah. we call it the secondary market. It's a little bit more respectable than <laughs> it was back then. I came obviously from my software company with, uh, I have two degrees, so I came as a professional with customer service orientation. I have a passion for watches and I bought what I loved. But really my secret back then was I was buying watches that I loved that no other dealer was buying. So if you looked for a Rolex Patek AP Richard Mille, well, actually, Richard Mille, I was really early with all of these brands, and nobody was buying them even back then. But Rolex Patek AP, there were many competitors of mine who were buying and inventorying those watches. I prefer to inventory Urwerk and Richard Mille and FP Journe and A. Lang and & Son and those brands that weren't as popular back then. So because they were rare and because they were hard to find, when collectors wanted them, they found me. Yeah. That was my trick. So you were a known buyer. And I was a buyer, and then the collectors found me to buy from me. So when they were looking for something uh, and didn't want to walk into a retail store and get it from a retail store, the other collector friends of theirs referred them to me. So I grew my business. I have two or th- 2,500 uh, customers on my database today, and I would say to you that, Okay, in the last few years, we have social media and the internet and our website, but probably 85 to 90% of that came through word of mouth, which is the strongest source of uh, referral. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I want to unpack that a little bit because I think it's very
0: important. You had to bring two things to the table. <clears throat> One is the, the the merchant mind, as I'll call it, whereas I need to acquire this thing and then sell it to someone else and make a little bit of money. And to do that, you sort of have to have a taste of how easy this is going to be and am I going to make money off of this? And that mentality is absolutely required if you're going to, if you're going to be selling watches, right? You, you can't do that. But there's another element, which a lot of the people who are great merchants don't have, that's being a real watch lover. Yes. Because if you're not a real watch lover, what do you buy as a merchant? You buy what's popular. And what's popular, especially today, has a lot of demand. And so you, if you acquire something, you're probably not going to be able to sell it for a big margin. Now, if you know watches and you know what to look for, then you can be a hunter and you can look for all those things that you're like, I know that that has high inherent value, but because not a lot of people know about it, it's not popular. Because
1: it's not popular, retail resale price isn't that high. But I did something else that maybe you'll be shocked by and maybe I'll shock some of the audience. For, <laughs> the, for the first 10 years, I would say, I'm just throwing out a, a guess here, but for probably 10, maybe even 15 years of my business in the beginning... I took away all the risk from the consumers. I gave my clients, collector clients, a guaranteed buyback. Uh, yeah. And that doesn't exist today. Oh, no more. So think of no, not from me necessarily. I'm saying people don't even ask for that anymore. And the thinking today is, and this has been frustrating for me. We can talk into uh, talk about this as a totally different subject, but. Over the last few years, people have been buying watches expecting to make money. When we all first started, it was a passion, should be a passion. You should buy the watch and expect to lose something. If you buy it right, what is that number that you're willing to lose? And so the model that I created, I determined that for me to run a successful business back then, as a small independent with very little overhead, I needed to make ten percent margin. Okay. And and I'm bringing this up because I read, a, uh, I'm I'm part, uh, part of some of these forums, these chats on on WhatsApp groups, and this subject came up this week. I just thought of it as we're sitting here about how come. My dealer tells me they make such a thin margin, but when I sell to them, uh, they're only willing to buy at a certain price and then they list it for double that. How can it be such a slim margin? I kept my business totally honest. I told my clients, if the market remains the same and I sell you a brand new watch, I'll buy it back from you. If it comes back to me in like new condition, from brand new at 80% of what you paid. And if you buy it like new from me and return it to me like new still, I'll give you back 90%. So there was my 10% margin built in. It's a given that if you sell something brand new, there is an additional 10% depreciation going from new to pre-owned. But once it was already pre-owned- The restocking fee. Whatever you want to call it, but it was now, it's no longer a brand new item and now it's pre owned. And there were, that was the 20% versus the 10%. But that allowed me to educate so many collectors about these smaller independent brands that weren't popular like they are today. And I'm going to mention all of them Richard Mill, FP Jean, MBNF, uh, Romain Gautier, Erwork, Grubel Fawzi, D. Bethune, and the list goes on. And as I educated people about these brands that weren't as well-known back then, if I said to them, try this, it's so interesting. Look at the passion behind this watch. Look at the, the soul inside of this watch. Um, and if you try it, you're not going to lose more than 10% if you want to trade it back to me or sell it back to me.
0: So this, this is where your salesmanship comes in. Because psychologically, this is a very attractive proposition, even though you don't really lose. The idea is that we know this is a big risk, buying this thing you don't know about. But if you, tr- if you feel like you make a mistake, you don't lose that much. In fact, you feel like you're, you're more or less whole. And I'm sure in a lot of instances, if something happened, you would trade them, you'd make them happy somehow. Exactly. So, but this idea that you built in a safety net, because that is a big issue. People worry, if I buy this and I wanna resell it, I don't wanna lose my pants. 10%, I don't think people are gonna say is a huge risk especially when you know, someone else has to obviously resell it. But people believe they're losing 50%, 60%, 70%, right. and that scares the hell out of them. You know that the percentage of people that are going to take you up on this offer is not very high. Yet having that warranty out
1: there that people can take advantage of makes them feel great. And I, and I took it even a step further. It wasn't a tradeback percentage, it was a buyback. So if somebody called me back and said, I've decided I want to sell you back the watch, I had to send a wire or a check. Yeah. It wasn't a trade back. So I couldn't build in additional no, profit onto something yeah. else. I left everything open. You would
0: you would you would technically lose if they changed their mind, but you knew that it would probably happen infrequently enough that the promise was more valuable to you than, you know having to satisfy a bunch of people or constantly returning.
1: And and it brings up another subject, consignment watches. Ah. People would say to me, if if they proposed a watch to sell to me and I gave a number, just, let's just use simple numbers to make it easy, 10,000. 10, mm-hmm. And they say, no, well, the, the watch is probably worth 12,000. Why don't I just consign it to you and you have nothing to lose. You're going to take it for 12,000 and you're going to sell it maybe for something above that. Mm-hmm. Why it never worked for me was, I think it works for... Dealers who didn't have the money or the knowledge and couldn't afford to buy it and didn't care what happened to it after that first sale. For me, I owned the sale and I owned the watch and I owned the customer forever. So if I took a watch on $12,000 on consignment, using that example, and somebody proposed $12,500, less than my normal 10% margin, but I decided, okay, I'm going to sell Ariel's watch and I'm going to let somebody else have it and they're going to enjoy it. Now, three months later, they want to sell it back to me and I got to buy buy it back from them for 90% of 12 and a half thousand. I originally thought it was worth only 10. Now I'm committed to buy it back for 11,250. And I was originally gonna sell it for 11, buying it for 10 to sell it for 11. So I'm a big believer that lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place. I got lucky the first time getting 12 and a half, but really all I did was made the consigner successful. He made his money and I made 500. Second time round, I'm either going to make a, a customer unhappy or if I was correct with a real market value of that watch, I would have lost the second time round. I've so never, I never seen took it on consignment.
0: a situation where you can blend consignment and owned inventory very naturally. I agree with you that it creates a lot of strange situations. And for the person who's looking at the store and the selection, it's very clear, like, this is the one they own and this is the one they're consigning for someone. Like, it's super clear. And I think it looks
1: it doesn't look very elegant so i never so took I, agree with you. I never took consignment from anybody and i never offered other dealers consignment of my watches and the the reason for that is i believe that it was just a it was a it was a draw for them to bring people into their store but they weren't motivated to sell my watch because they had no skin in the game they'd rather sell what they had So That's one of the interesting things about my business and my inventory when you look at what I have, whether it was from back then or today, these exotic watches that may be risky for some people to stock. Everything you see on my listings and my inventory is available. If you called me up and said, I'll be there in an hour, I'd like to see X, Y, and Z, every single item available is immediately available to see, to buy, to walk away with.
0: Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. Before we talk about Force and Debitune and some brand, specific brands, I want to talk about the thing that always made me smile about your business. Is before you launched your website, you had the list. <laughs> and I, I love this because it's kind of amusing because there was the Rostovsky list. And this was the list of the watches that you then had. And everyone knew that they were great watches and that they were a good price, but you had to have the list, right? And so it was this funny things. You have the updated list, you have the list. Was this sort of just like an amusing thing that you like to keep going before having a website? I'm just curious, why were you, why'd you hold out a little bit longer than the other guys? Yeah. Before
1: I came with a website. Yeah, you know. Well, it's, a, it's a funny but great question, and I'm not even sure I went in the right direction okay. <laughs> by creating the website. So the, uh, on the, in the first instance, I, even though I'm, I, I'm very public and well-presented and I have a good presence, I'm kind of shy and underground with my business, so I didn't ever want to be out there. And uh, having a website means that you're out there with everything to the world not just to your private list. So having a private list was good for me because it kept me quiet and private and the brands like that also back then, not recently. You know, they like the fact that if there was a very important, any brand, Breguet, AP, Vacheron, Patek for sale, and if it was on somebody's website, it was visible and might not be good for them, but if it was on my list, it wasn't really visible. It was visible to my few thousand people. But on the other hand, the clients that I have on my list really appreciate being on the list. And it's the club. And it became like an addiction. So I I set up the schedule. It was the first and the 15th of every month or the closest day thereafter. If the first fell on a Sunday or a public holiday, it would go out on the second. And I would get, if I was a day late, sometimes even if I was three or four, five hours late, I would get 25 to 50 emails. Did you forget me? Did I miss the list? Did something happen? So there wasn't an addiction to it's receive like a, it's that It's like list. a show. They're excited about the next episode. And so now I have a dilemma. What do I do? Because my watches are available on the internet to the world, and I send an email every two weeks. I started doing this a few months ago every week, and I realized it was too frequent, so now I'm, I've reversed back to the 1st and the 15th. But is a watch now available to the public before one of my list people receive it because they get the email from me. So, and it did happen to us one time where a watch was being presented to the list this afternoon at 3 p.m., but we went live with that watch this morning at 8 a.m. And it got sold at 9 a.m. And then the list went out. And one minute later, one of my clients emailed and said, I'd like that watch. It was already sold. And it was disappointing for them because they were ready, waiting for the list. They received right. it and it was already sold. So I'm thinking of ways to uh, still make my clients feel special, that they're going to get special deals from my list. And I've got some ideas that I think the first will go out tomorrow.
0: It's great that you're thinking about this strategy. I don't think that most people in, ai will just call it a retail setting, think this way, when did you realize you had a little bit of advantage on the average watch salesperson
1: who clearly doesn't consider the psychology as much as you do? I didn't even realize I had an advantage as part of my personality.
0: I, I, I know, but you you look around. I mean, you, you've had conversations with the retailers. You must realize their mind is not customer-focused like yours is. I
1: think that... Your question was, when did I realize that? I'm not sure that I realized that, that that was a specific focus, except to always believe that the customer comes first and have a customer service orientation. I think that a lot of the watch trading business and the watch dealers in the in the world today are not educated people. They come into the business as traders. Interesting. So they a lot of them in the last few years of COVID have come in young, straight from school, straight from whatever other job they found a passion and interest in watches. And you have a background with an education and a degree. I have the same. I come to this after a software company where customer service is critical. And I think we approach it in a totally different way.
0: You're right, because the trader isn't about generating demand. The trader says, market wants this. I'll go get some of this as a commodity, and I'll sell it to the market that wants it. If the market no longer wants the item, the they'll tra- move to something else. Or they'll just discount it. Yes. They don't know what else to do. You are in the business of, I love this category, this hobby, okay? And because I love it, I understand a little bit about why other people might like it. I'm not just gonna be selling them products, I'm creating an experience around buying watches from me, which isn't just buying watches, but is fun, like the hobby's supposed to be fun.
1: And it's educational, and it's passion-oriented, and it's directed to give them true, honest advice, whether that works out good or bad for my business. It would always be true, honest advice. And I think that the, the difference between being a trader and being a professional with customer service orientation, I think we look at things also long term versus just this one sale. The right. trader sometimes, you know, as you say, they're into this brand or this product today, and if it doesn't work, they'll discount it and move immediately to another one. Immediately. We respect you too in your business with the brands. We respect the brands from now to eternity. And it's interesting because we spoke a few minutes ago or a little earlier in the podcast about how the secondary market is now called the secondary market, a respected market, but prior to the last few years, it was the gray market. The gray market isn't a very kind term. And it wasn't spoken about kindly either. And yet I was always respected by the brands, always. Yeah. And I think that that, and that allowed me to then move on to become a distributor for Grubel 4Z and a part owner of d but I think the big difference there is this f- uh, mentality of just respecting the brands. I would never do anything in my business that affected the brand value ever.
0: Let's, and let's talk about what others have, because I think this is very important. And this is a, this, the scenario is essentially, I'm going to acquire one or more pieces of stock from you brand, but without telling you, I'm going to sell it in a way or all of them in a way where it's going to hurt your long-term value. I'm going to discount or I'm going to screw over another one of your retailers elsewhere by undercutting their you know undercutting their prices in their country. I'm going to do something that makes me money but is either going to piss off someone else that works for you or is going to make consumers not trust your price in the long term. And I think that's what we're talking about. 100%. Because it's unclear sometimes, you know, because to, why you're respected I think is 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 a question because They're like, well, why wouldn't they
1: respect all the other dealers? Because dealers lie (laughs) and and cheat. And and the traders, if we want to call them traders instead of dealers, because I'm a dealer. I don't think I'm a trader. Uh, It's about short-term capitalist view of profit and not really being concerned about the longer term of their own business, frankly, and the value of the brands that they're working with. And legally
0: speaking, I think it's important to bring this in because my, my legal education, you think, oh, why you know, could, could they do this? Could they tamper with a brand's thing? Legally speaking, there's not too much that they're required to do. Once you purchase a product from a brand, or even if you get it you know uh, on the secondary channel, you can do sort of whatever you want with it. So there is naturally built into this industry a bit of a conflict between those who make watches and those who sell watches. There doesn't need to be. But there are enough of it that there requires a lot of understanding, trust building, relationships. I think that's, again, before we talk about Global of Force, relationships
1: in this industry is more important than seemingly anything else. Right. And also passion. You know, when it comes, I've met with so many people the first time I meet with them, we sit down, they're coming in, and it's a sales meeting for me. I'm trying to bring in a new customer and sell a watch. But they leave immediately saying, I have no doubt about your passion for the world that you're in. And this comes back to, you know, why am I so happy in what I do? Because if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And I, honestly, I've been doing this as a career now for over 20 years, and it feels like nothing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing for me. I feel like one of the most blessed people in the, in the world. I'm healthy, we're making money, and I do what I want to do every day that's a real passion for me.
0: That's great. Now let's talk about Grubel perregaux because I'm imagining when you first started getting into this brand, it fueled a lot of your passion. Because these are these are pretty fantastic watches. What did you like about this brand, and how did you connect with them personally?
1: Well, the first one I bought, actually, as I said to you before, was 2007. They launched the 30-degree Double Tourbillon Vision in 2004, and I bought one of those in 2007. It was one of the most beautiful objects. I'd ever seen in my life. The finishing, the, the way it worked. I had conversations with Stephen Forsey Direct. It was a relationship that I built and I just absolutely fell in love with the brand. They do such phenomenal work. And today I'm one of the largest collectors, I think. I have uh, 12 pieces in my personal collection. So even though I'm a watch dealer, trader, whatever you want to call it, I still am a passionate watch collector. Now, Grubel-Force watches,
0: again, all of them are priced very high. I would say the average price is in excess of half a million dollars. And before Richard Meal got sort of a lot of the attention it did, uh, Grubel-Force you know, really was the most expensive brand overall, right? Now, you said you had sort of a background in, 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 in management software for people that, that manage the money of high-net-worth individuals. What did you know about the mentality of a high-net-worth individual That allowed you to be successful with something that even though these objects are beautiful, I'd say most people would fail with this brand because it's very difficult to, to create the world and the passion around it.
1: Honestly, there was no correlation between my prior business and the current business because the people that we were dealing with were were not the end high net worth individuals. We were dealing with the CPAs, their managers, their their, their professional babysitters. But but even even the psychology, maybe, about how they think and how they work? Not really. I I don't think that there was a correlation between that. But just my love and my passion for the brand, educating people about how interesting it was, um, giving them the buyback guarantee you know, in the secondary yeah. market. All of that helped to create interest for what I was doing. And, and, and anyway, they were making less than 100 watches a year. Now they're making a little bit more. Yeah. The average price point is less now. Um, but you're right. For the first 10 years of me being involved with a brand, 100 watches a year, average price point, $500,000. Uh, not an easy sell. But with passion and education and the right clientele, you get there. What did the clientele appreciate about
0: the brand? Obviously, the finishing is, is you know, bar none, probably some of the best, if not the best, especially for production, you know, that type of volume. Uh, but, you know, talk a little bit about, especially here in, in North America, I think it's interesting who is interested in
1: specifically this type
0: of watch versus, you know, the whole myriad of other HIND watches out there.
1: I think that the, um, there's a saying that I kind of live by, somebody mentioned it to me years ago, the watch you wear is not about telling time, it's about telling who you are. Okay. And what I love about the independent brands and, and even Gruber is you wear it really for yourself, for your own personal enjoyment. You're not wearing it to show off to others, to flex. You know, everybody's using the term now, flex. When you buy <laughs> some of these over-retail hype brands that we saw go to 2, 3X and now have come back to still a little bit over-retail, but still overpriced. I think the motivation for the consumer, it's a totally different consumer who's buying that. So the consumer who's buying the watch that they want to show off and flex, they want somebody across the room to look at them and say, ah, he's got that expensive watch, whatever it is. I think the buyer for the brands that I was always passionate about, they were buying it for themselves to enjoy it, to appreciate it for themselves. Because the reality is when you can afford something like this, you don't just have one, you have multiple. And many of my clients hardly wear some of their pieces, yeah. but they take them out of the vault and they enjoy them for themselves, just like you would if you put a piece of art on the wall, you enjoy that for yourself.
0: I think the variety of people that buy these things are sometimes as interesting as the products themselves. You know, because you look at the outside and you look at all the weird watches that are made. And sometimes you wonder, like, does the world need all these watches? But the watches have to be as unique as the buyers are. Because people want to find that watch for themselves. And I, th- I hope you'll agree here, but the more education you have, the more you buy watches, the less you want popular stuff.
1: Yes, I agree a thousand percent. And even more than that, as I'm aging and developing in my life and my career, I just want to work with people I have fun with. Whether it's customers or whether whether it's suppliers. Thank God the world is being good and we're secure financially, but you really just want to enjoy the people you work with. And we're so blessed that we're in an environment that is a passion environment. And I want to create long-term relationships on the buy side and on the sell side and just work and have fun.
0: I want to talk about Tune for a minute because I think this is sort of an interesting story. So Tune, for anyone who doesn't know, is a super cool brand, very high-end, very innovative, very special, just, again, very, very cool brand. But when it was sort of uh, run by itself, never seemed to be able to make very much money, right? The cost of the watches was high. They had a big factory, things like that. At some point, you're brought in because they they need money and you end up putting money in there. Talk a little bit about what you see. What is shown to you? What types of questions do you have in your mind? I mean, I'm guessing you like the watches, so I know that. But like as a business person being asked to invest, what are you shown? What do you see? And what are some of the questions you have about this? Because I just I
1: find that very fascinating. So, there's a great story behind that. I first was introduced to the brand also around the same time as Gruble 4 in the mid-2000s, 2004-5, when they first came out and then they launched the DB15, which was the perpetual calendar with the bullet lugs and the uh, three-dimensional moon phase. I fell in love with that watch. And yes, today I have a huge d collection too. I have, I don't even know, but somewhere between 10 and 13 pieces, I'm not sure, in my personal collection. And... I traded in the brand a lot, uh, 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 through the years, buying and selling, and, and like many smaller independent brands, they did not hold value. And there were tough times. After 2008-9, there were tough times, and then after the um, the war in, in Eastern Europe in 2013, I think it was, Debithian had some tough times because they sold a lot to Russia back then. And in 2017, early in 2017, I was approached by a broker trader in um, Switzerland who said, I know you know this brand and the company has some financial difficulties. They have 54 watches in stock that I'm going to buy at cents on the dollar. Will you buy them with me? And I said, with pleasure, I'd love to buy them with you, but I have one condition. You send all the watches to me and we take two years to sell these watches. Why coming back to some of your earlier conversation? I respected the brand, so even though we were buying at a huge percentage from dis- from retail, you can't just dump it. I wanted to respect the brand because I loved this brand and I knew that they had a lot going. So the gentleman said to me, "That's not the business I'm in." I'll sell you a few, whichever ones you want, because you've helped me buy them. Pick the ones you want and I'll sell the others elsewhere. And I said, no, because if you sell to me at a percentage of retail and you sell the others to somebody else at the same percentage of retail, then they're gonna ruin the brand for me. I'm not gonna do it, they're gonna do it. So what we agreed was I ended up buying the entire package at cost plus 10. He made his 10% and I bought the entire package. And it took me two to three years to sell them. But in the interim, and by the way, when I presented the watches to many of my end clients, they said to me, it was a big Purchase for me 57 watches. I think it was close to six million Swiss francs at retail yeah,
0: value. Yeah,
1: And a lot of people said to me, that's brave of you because they have financial difficulties. What if they go bust? What's it gonna be worth to you then? And I said, there's no way this company is going bust. At that time, I think they had 26 or 28 patents and Danny the one of the best living watchmakers, they were doing exceptional work. The watches were phenomenal. I knew there was no way they were gonna go bust. Right. And as it turned out, uh, Pierre-Jacques, the ex-CEO, uh, approached me uh, six months later, and he put together an investment group to reacquire the company, or 51% of the company. Bought out David Zanetta and uh, relaunched the brand, so to speak. And I was involved with him and Danny Flagellay. and I was a key player in that uh, relaunch. I also handled distribution for, for the United States and Canada, and then we sold the brand about two years ago.
0: Selling it after you'd been through all that, were you you know were you like,, oh, I'm still not done with this game. I still want to play or you're like, I've done my job here at someone else. I'm just curious what the emotions were when you, when you finally exited from debitoon?
1: I had done my job and I still love the brand and I would still love to participate with uh, the new buyers and they they include me and involve me because I had a two-year contract that ends in August of this year. So they, they still have involved me, but when we acquired it, it was acquired by an investment group Mm-hmm. I was the largest investor of that group, but I was a still a very, I was a minority shareholder in the company. Pierre Jacques was the CEO and Danny Flegelet, of course, still a major, a major shareholder, not a majority, but a major shareholder. And the goal was to turn it around and resell it in three to five years. And it took four years and we did that and I didn't resist it. So I was really happy with the results. I was really happy to see where the brand had gotten to at that time. And I'm even happier to see where it is today.
0: Now today, it's owned. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure, you know, what it's Watchbox, Godberg, that group. I'm not sure exactly how they're defining who owns it, but it's 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 owned by um, I guess There's other not not just American, but we'll say we'll say an American interest. And I think it's very interesting because for many years, uh, people like you know Danny Godberg and others have had the experience of building up a brand's popularity in the United States creating passion, customer base, real momentum. And when that happens, not all the time, but a lot of the time, um, the people in Switzerland, whoever the owners are, be like, oh, wow, we're doing well there. Now it's our turn to take it over. And then they go into the market and they effectively cancel a lot of the distribution rights of the people who are doing it, try to take it over themselves, saying like, well, thanks for rolling out the carpet. Your work is, is done here. But then often than not, they're not able to carry it on. Now, the people in America who made that brand popular, uh, the first few times this happens to them, they're like, wow, that sucks. But eventually they're like, you know what? I'm not going to let this happen to me again. And so what's interesting is you now have an entity in America that wants to build the market here, but also wants to protect itself from this happening again. And I want you to just share a little bit of your opinions, because I know it's a giant topic. But about this problem where, again, someone in North America makes a brand popular only to find that the brand is like, well, your work is no longer necessary here. We're going to enjoy that which you built. You are now evicted from your home. That's a real issue. It's not spoken about that often. But it is very true that, you know, burn me once, uh, shame on me. Burn me twice, shame on you. I mean, we've got to the point that the smarter, um, you know, distributors and sales entities in America— you know, want to avoid this problem, right?
1: I think it's not only America. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a problem with brands in general that when they need you, they love you, they're all over you, they offer you everything. And when they don't need you, they're very quick to discard. Um, that is, we've seen it happen, that's not the case with D-Bethune here because uh, Watchbox is the owner and they'll control the direction. Yeah, they'll of the literally company.
0: not allow that to happen. Exactly. I mean, it's a it's it's a it's almost a nuclear move. It's like if I can't get the brand to cooperate and be fair, I just have to own enough of the brand to make sure they don't do it. Right. Like that's
1: a that's a that's. That's so much power necessary just to make sure that doesn't happen. But I think even I'm told I've never been an authorized retailer brick and mortar with a paddock or Rolex distribution contract, but I'm told that they're annual contracts. So they're not even longer than a year contracts. So yeah. Every year you're renegotiating your relationship with Rolex and Paddock, or the two. Well, Rolex is the king of the industry. Paddock, of course, in the high end, the king for sure. Um, but it's an annual situation. So how secure are you? I think it's become accepted in our industry that the power lies with the market, really. If the brand needs you, the power lies with you, and if the brand doesn't need you, the power lands, uh, you know, resides with them. But the funny thing is that your
0: success can work against you. Yes. So when you want to be smart and focus on longevity, which is what any business person wants, it's very unclear how to act. If you perform too well, don't do that. If you perform not well enough, don't do that. There's no clear middle,
1: and that's not fair, right? You, you're right. But to, coming back to your question, we, we sold the brand. I, was, I had the distribution contract. They paid me for the distribution contract. It was a very fair and acceptable deal for both parties. And in life, you have to accept that, move on, stay friends, and, and, and continue to support the, the business in general.
0: Let's now talk
1: a little bit about
0: the future. You're someone that, that obviously plans ahead. You think long-term, um, and you're a builder. So right now, the website is up. You talked about being an authorized dealer. I'd like to hear about some of those brands. I just want to know what Stephen's plan is, because you're a planner, and I'm curious to know what you have in mind for the next few years.
1: I think that the the interest in watches has become so great over the last few years that we have an opportunity in the secondary or primary market to develop and grow. I think that we need to continue to maintain good relationships with the supply chain as well as obviously our customers, customer service orientation. The I believe that the trader mentality, and the let me restate that, the investors, the speculators who came into the market have already now fallen out, and most of them will fall out before the shuffle ends. Uh, and I think that's good and healthy because the, the speculators came into the market for money only and not for passion. So I think that it is a passion industry and it is there is a lot of soul that goes into a lot of what we do and what we've involved with in the high end anyway. The hand finishing or the, the, the creative movements, the creative designs, it's really uh, a passion area. And I think that the client's that we've had and built over the years who still have the passion are now coming back and starting to take control over the speculators. And I think that there's been so much that's been produced over the last few years. I see a big opportunity for myself, um, positioning myself with the website in the secondary market, being being in 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 a strong position to buy because I don't believe in this consignment or brokerage business being in a strong position to buy and own good inventory, and I try to only buy really good, primo, box, papers, condition, good condition stuff. And then, of course, I've really worked a lot with smaller independent brands over the years, and the ones that I still work with appreciate me, respect me, I think business is getting tougher. It will continue to get tougher, and I think they're gonna rely on me more as the years go on now, the, the coming few years. And I'm there to support them because I really have a passion. So I work directly with Romain gautier I work directly with Ludovic Ballouard, with Vianney Holter, with the Gronefeld brothers. So there's a good bunch that I work with. And then, of course, I support the secondary market too. So if I see stuff in an auction or um, uh, that's underpriced or if I see uh, 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 retailers, not retailers, sorry, private collectors selling some of these brands in the secondary market, I try to acquire them myself.
0: So... In hearing what you're saying, I'm just trying to consolidate it, I actually see you sort of just doubling down on your on what's been working for you and recognizing through the long term that approach of focusing on great relations with consumers, being fair to them, uh, you know, charging what you, you should, not what you can. Um, and being mindful of, of trying to make sure that people want to come back to you is the best way of doing it. And the brands that recognize that you're able to do that well are, are now trusting you with authorized dealer status, which is what you're choosing to do. I, 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 to me, it sounds like a good plan. And again, I think the message to send out to other people is it wasn't for your particular mindset in how to acquire how to talk to the consumers, how to talk to the brands, none of this works. So you are really creating a wonderful structure around the very specific and personal way that you like to do business.
1: A thousand percent. And coming back to what we said earlier, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. I, If I had the opportunity to sell out at this stage of my life, I wouldn't want to do that because it just, wouldn't make sense. I want to, unless it was with a company that I could participate with and continue to do this until I retire for another 20 years, I want to do this. And, and <laughs> so having said that, I just want to continue the same way. And I also do believe <clears throat> some of the t- dealer traders out there who came into these hype watches over the last few years of, of, uh, irrational behavior in the speculative business, they might fall away now because that business it no longer exists. We never really liked that, right? Because no one
0: other than them made money. Consumers didn't get better watches. Brands didn't get more money for research and development or production. Just these, you know, as you said, speculators, which if I call them speculators and scalpers, you know, tried to get more money for the same watch and only
1: they benefited. And the core business is still bigger today than it was two or three years ago. And I think it'll still continue to grow. And people, uh, what, what jewelry can a man wear except a watch, really? a ring and a watch a few things but it's the main jewelry it is it is It's it's the one we like the most and so i believe that it's going to continue to develop and grow and we're going to have a place and a role to play within it and we're going to do this for another number of years and yes you're right i'm going to come back to the point about we didn't like that the speculative business i have this conversation with leon adams from cellini many times over the last few years and the truth is I did very well over the COVID years from, from 20, mid to early 2020 until let's say end of even third quarter of 2022. We made more business than we really would have in normal times. But it wasn't fun. And I'll tell you what the difference was for a guy like Leon and myself. We always specialized and focused on the high end independent brands, the passion, and the education of the client. And what happened through this period of time was you didn't really need to educate or sell anybody. If you owned a watch, you could sell the watch. There was so much demand and so little supply that even these small independent brands, lots of other dealers got involved. They just had to own it and offer it, and then they could sell it. They never knew anything about it. They didn't understand what a resonance was or what a tourbillon was or what a double tourbillon was or what a quick set perpetual calendar was or even a minute repeater compared to a grand sonnery. They had no idea of what these things were, but as long as they owned the watch, there was a buyer for it. And now we're gonna revert back to the time when we have to educate the clients and explain to them why one over another.
0: Stephen, we've uh, we've exceeded our time. We'll have to do another conversation before we end. Just remind everyone uh, what the name of the website is and where else they can go online to learn more about you.
1: Uh, Rostovskywatches.com. On the Instagram, I think it's at Rostovsky My personal Instagram is at s Rostovsky. but I'm old-fashioned. I love a phone call. Call me. Find our number on the website. Call me. Let's chat and. Talk about a common passion.
0: I recommend anyone uh, take Stephen up on that invitation. Thank you. This has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Stephen Rostovsky. Stephen, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me, Ariel.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.